It was in 1994. The world was watching, but failed to act. I believed at that time that I was doing my best. But I realized after the genocide that there was more that I could and should have done to sound the alarm and rally support. Today, the country is still recovering from the impact of the genocide. We saw what happened in Rwanda in 1994. And we know the horrific consequences when hate is allowed to prevail. Preventing history from repeating itself requires countering these hate-driven movements that have become a transnational threat. Relations of intolerance towards opposition and critics. In 19 years of its rule, the Rwandan Patriotic Front accused of enforcing arbitrary arrests, detentions, killings and torture against opponents. Others are co corrupt people uh, in our new system who do not want to, to, to face the justice or to face what they have become. Thank you for joining us today on our audio journey through Africa. My name is Nangam Sokwinana and I'm delighted that you have tuned in again. In our previous episodes, we have visited South Africa and talked to Constitutional Court Judge Edwin Cameron. From there, we travelled to Zimbabwe, where we met Senator David Coulthard and Dumasani Mulea, international award-winning investigative journalist. We met Elizabeth Minde from Tanzania, Nicholas Opio and Bobby Wine from Uganda, as well as Aluin Tin from Senegal, reporting on the situation in Mali. We also introduced you to human rights defenders in Cameroon, Nora Shuyer and Alvis Weppengong. If you missed those episodes, do take a listen. Today we find ourselves in Rwanda. Rwanda, officially the Republic of Rwanda, is also known as the land of a thousand hills. Rwanda shares borders with Uganda, Tanzania, Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2017, President Paul Kagame was elected to a third seven-year term. According to official figures, he received 99% of the vote. As we already pointed out in previous episodes, even in democratic constitutional states, human rights violations occur on a regular basis. Emerging and developing countries, especially in Africa, are particularly affected. In Rwanda, significant human rights issues include serious restrictions on freedom of expression, with things like violence against journalists, censorship and website blocking, torture, acts of violence and criminalization on sexual orientation, substantial interference with the rights of peaceful assembly and restrictions on political participation. I am very pleased that Louis Businje is joining us today. Louis is a human rights lawyer living in Rwanda. He has a master's degree in international human rights law from Lancaster University in the UK and a postgraduate degree in public international law from the Independent University of Kigali. He is an alumni of Uganda Christian University where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in law. He currently serves as the Strategic Associate at Interconnected Justice, a pan-African organization that advocates for the dignity of African persons and heritage. 
Prior to his appointment, he was the program's coordinator at Human Rights First Rwanda Association, a national organization that promotes human rights and access to justice for marginalized persons in Rwanda. Just a note to our listeners that Louis is recording in Rwanda and outside his home due to lockdown restrictions currently in Rwanda, and as that is where the most stable internet connection is, so you may hear a bird or two tweeting in places. Thank you so much, Louis, for being our guest today. Louis, I was telling the audience that we are in Rwanda today. We recently celebrated Women's Day in South Africa. Rwanda has or at least had the highest representation of women in parliament in the world and is pursuing a strong gender equality political agenda. How did this come about? I must begin by saying that uh, it would be quite hard to separate what is happening in Rwanda without alluding to the um, social and economic political landscape that is uh, strongly attached to what happened here in 1994. So. A uh, brief background of um, the atrocities that were committed then. Uh, as you probably well know that the genocide against the Tutsi occurred and uh, this unfortunate occurrence uh, utterly de- decimated the population and uh, unfortunately um, most of the victims so happened to be men of the million people plus who perished um, in this genocide against the Tutsi, most of them being men, there, there happened to be a leadership gap that existed post the genocide. And um, this, of course, spurred more women to take up the leadership positions that uh, existed within the civil service. And um, most women, um, I must say, uh, during the genocide were given the pedestal of uh, having decision-making progress within the homesteads um, as the genocide was taking place. So uh, as most of them also played uh, a pivotal role in the liberation struggle, they had this sense of um, wanting to use some of those um, skills uh, within uh, governance structures. And uh, true to the word, as uh, uh, decency more or less uh, tried to prevail within the country post the genocide as the 2003 constitution was being promulgated. Um, it was only natural that um, women took the lead and take up the mantle of um, responsibility within uh, parliamentary roles that um, were there. Um, right now, as we speak, um, Rwanda leads uh, the globe in as far as um, gender equity is concerned. Uh, through parliamentary representation. Then in 2003, uh, when the constitution was being uh, promulgated, we had uh, the quota system that expected uh, 30% of them, to, of parliamentarians, to be, to be women. But um, we actually had uh, a higher number that, than was expected. So we had 56% of women who were elected or appointed as parliamentarians in both uh, chambers of Parliament being the deputies and the Senate. Today we have um, them at 62%, and Rwanda is leading in this front globally. Um, I must say that uh, this 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 does not only stop at uh, 
at them being in parliament. It uh, cuts across other sectors as well. In the private sector, we have an element of gender equity. Um, you know, we, we'd, uh, I'd give the example of uh, parastatals like the Rwanda Development Board. This is the institution that is mandated uh, with uh, promoting tourism and uh, investment in the country. It's led by a woman. Um, the national carrier, Rwanda Air, was until recently, only recently, uh, being led by a woman. I have definitely often heard that women are extremely well promoted in the politics of Rwanda. I I appreciate what you've just shared with us because you've also uh, expanded on the fact that it's not only within the politics of Rwanda that women are promoted, but also you do try your best as a country to promote the equality and the equity of women across all sectors. Thank you very much for sharing that with us, Louis. I do know that you've also traveled quite a lot and that you've also studied in the United Kingdom. Could you please share and reflect uh, to us how progressive do you think Rwanda is in terms of feminism compared to the other countries that you might have visited? How is feminism regarded in Rwanda? To begin with, I would, I would say that um, it's, it's in an ideal world from the caring nature that women have, their pro-development, uh, pro-nurturing. It's, it only, it's only right that um, a woman would lead an institution. And that is what Rwanda has been trying to promote, uh, feminism, gender equity and equality across the board. But I also must say this, that... Um, it uh, wouldn't be fair at all to compare the context, uh, not only in Rwanda and Africa at large, to uh, democracies that have existed for centuries. Um, the United Kingdom, as, as, as you rightly put it, has uh, democracies that has been there for since time immemorial. But even then, they still uh, have gaps, and they had gaps. I would allude to the fact that um, it's only in 1918 that um, uh, women were given the right to electoral suffrage in the United Kingdom. That's just about a century ago. Seems uh, fairly recent uh, compared to the fact that um, the United Kingdom is one of the most progressive progressive countries in the world. Um, Rwanda has tried its best to adapt to feminism, uh, regardless of the fact that that do exist some challenges. Uh, we see that, as I've mentioned, we have uh, governing structures that encourage this, but uh, from the bottom going up, they, we still have several gaps. Uh, I'll give uh, examples on uh, education and training, for example. Less and less girls access formal training, especially in early years of development. You find uh, the ratio is not, uh, is not balanced. More boys attend uh, school than, than girls. Uh, we have issues concerning se- sexual reproductive health rights. Um, of recent, we've had uh, so much activism uh, towards uh, access to menstrual hygiene uh, in favor of the girls, of course. Um, with um, the, the issue of poverty, it's also an, an underlying issue that, that seems not to be erased, but the main issue is this, uh, in the context that we live in right now, uh, Africa being the continent that it is, patriarchy seems to be the issue. 
and um, decision making for women, especially in the households in rural areas, seen is um, yet to be achieved. Um, that being said, um, people from uh, different sectors, the civil society, uh, lawyers, practitioners, and such, they try as best as they can to um, ensure that equality and equity prevails. Yeah. Uh, we have um, some policies like gender mainstreaming. I'll give the example of uh, uh, the land equity program that um, was uh, centered to in uh, 2011, where um, women and men have an equal share to the right of possessing land. And this was a long way in empowering them to access, um, not only have decision making capabilities in the in the homestead but also access other financial institution by giving loans and such and uh, this has been seen to try and spur women to take up um, some of this uh, it's it's a feminist uh, approach that 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 is being done at policy level um, we have various activities that um, uh, practitioners, practitioners like me partake in uh, I'll give the example of the 16 days of activism that happens every November. Uh, people like me, who's a strong proponent of the He for She movement, go out and um, advocate against the ill effects of uh, sexual gender-based violence. So um, to answer your question uh, in a nutshell, Feminism is something that is quite broad and um, we try our best to make sure that, uh, especially in the grassroots levels, women have a say in uh, what affects them. Indeed, we do appreciate the work that yourself and other women and men who are human rights defenders do in order to ensure the continued investment towards human rights, equality and equity. Louis, as you've already touched on, I'm aware that you are a human rights lawyer. Could you share with us what motivated you to become a human rights defender and to stand up for the rights of others? What is your story? My story is, uh, is one that has a very sad beginning because uh, I was uh, unfortunate enough, or fortunate depending on how you look at it, uh, to be born as a refugee. Uh, again, alluding to the fact that uh, this country was under time well in uh, 1994. My parents uh, gave birth to me and my siblings in a foreign land. I was born in Kenya. And um, this being so, at a very early age, I've had various incidents of uh, discrimination uh, perpetrated uh, towards me and my family based on the fact that we were living in a foreign land. Um, this is a... Um, an uh, issue, so something that not deter me, but inspired me to pursue um, means of addressing such such challenges, especially for people who are vulnerable, as I was then. So, me uh, pursuing a career in human rights uh, uh, activism and using my uh, profession in um, in the legal field to try and uh, create uh, equity for everyone across the board um, has been uh, something that was inculcated um, uh, at, at, at within, from, my from my childhood. I must say this, that along the way, I, um, I, I managed to gain experience and exposure 
and also learned from people who have been working in this field for several years. And they've shaped my mind both academically and professionally. And uh, to be honest, I stand on the shoulders of giants who inspire me to do the wonderful work or to emulate the wonderful work that they've been doing in, uh, in human rights. Thank you for sharing your personal story with us, Louis. Now, we have already said at the outset that human rights violations are occurring all over the world. You are living in Rwanda. What do you think are the most serious human rights violations in Rwanda at the present moment? If you look at human rights across the board, uh, social, economic, civil, political rights, there are many. And um, if I was to narrow it down to two freedoms that I think need to be addressed more, I would focus on uh, the right to freedom of expression and access to information, as well as uh, the freedom of um, the issue of uh, pre-trial detention. Uh, these are two issues that uh, keep on recurring and uh, seem not to be addressed adequately by the powers that be. So to begin with the freedom of expression, um, and access to information. This is a fundamental freedom that is provided for by the Constitution of the Republic of Rwanda under Article 38 that uh, provides that uh, everyone has uh, the right to freely express him or herself without any encumbrances. Uh, there's also a law relating to access to information that was enacted in 2013 that uh, empowers ind individuals, common citizens, to seek receive or impart information that is um, within the framework of public interest uh, within a, a timely manner. But then again, uh, you find uh, instances where uh, the state or authorities or people who are supposed to relay the information, um, broadening, broadening the exception to this, to this rule. Uh, of course, it's not an absolute rule. Uh, internationally, there are some exceptions to freedom of expression. Um, for example, one is not supposed to prejudice public uh, order, good morals, or invade on uh, personal fam family privacy. Uh, you find uh, that, um, and also mention the fact that uh, access to information also has its, uh, its, its exceptions. It's not an absolute um, right, so to speak. Uh, any information that uh, would uh, be seen to threaten uh, national security or legal proceeding or um, aim to reveal trade secrets. All, all these, are, these are exceptions to, to one accessing information and being um, uh, availed the information as, as is required by law. But then again, uh, uh, these exceptions are supposed to be ideally um, uh, interpreted in a narrow manner, but you find uh, the people who are supposed to uh, enforce or implement these freedoms um, use apply them in a broad manner. They did not apply them in a narrow manner, and this has been seen to be an impediment to to to, the, to, to, this, to these rights um, actually being seen to be done. Uh, something that has been also um, echoed by the Universal Periodic Review, the third cycle that happened uh, last year. Uh, 
15 of the recommendations that were handed down to Rwanda, all of them touched um, this issue of um, access to information and freedom of expression in the country. Uh, where we had the uh, Human Rights Council uh, urging the country to, or the state to ensure that media pluralism is, um, is seen. Uh, the independence of the media is something that is of utmost important. Um, you find um, uh, the recommendations relating to uh, the revision of uh, provisions that are seen to undermine the freedom of expression and access to information. I'll give the example of um, the cybersecurity law that has been used to uh, target um, online bloggers and uh, people who uh, somehow seem to be critical to the state. Uh, you'd have uh, the law relating to data protection as well that is tabled before parliament. Um, you find that all these laws seem to undermine the general rule that the principle that uh, access to information and freedom of expression is a right that is entitled to everyone. Uh, touching on uh, pretrial detention uh, very quickly, uh, this is provided for by the Criminal Procedure, Procedure Act. And to explain to the listeners what uh, pretrial detention is, uh, this is um, an incident where uh, a scenario where a suspect is uh, kept under confinement or detention before conviction or before he or she is tried. And uh, this has uh, been seen to be an issue because uh, um, most of the cases, there's uh, pretrial detentions uh, uh, way go way beyond the scope of, that is provided by law. There's also one thing that I'd like to find out. Sadly, homosexuality is considered a taboo p- topic in Rwanda, even though neither homosexuality nor homosexual acts are illegal. Rwanda is a signatory of the United Nations Joint Statement condemning violence against the LGBTQ people. How is it possible that homosexuality has such a negative position in Rwanda's society? This is something that I'm also very passionate about. Um, LGBTI rights in Rwanda uh, are not criminal de jure. But de facto, there are very many incidents of uh, discrimination and homophobia. Uh, to put this issue into context, uh, about 12 years ago in 2009, there were suggestions that uh, uh, this is uh, the LGBTIQ to be punished based on the fact that uh, uh, the, misco- the misconception that it is uh, un African or does not uh, promote African values. And uh, due to the word, the draft penal code then. Uh, 2009 had um, uh, a draconian article that uh, set to to punish anyone who's seen to be practicing or engaging in um, in uh, same-sex uh, relations and such, or even people who encourage or sensitize uh, to uh, a sentence that uh, exceeds uh, 10 years. But uh, through collective lobbying. Uh, by human rights practitioners, lawyers, activists, and such, journalists. Um, that particular article was deleted, and uh, indeed it was seen as a victory then. And uh, it's still being celebrated now because uh, of uh, 
the 54 African states. Uh, I think Rwanda is one of the few that um, has no criminal stance against the LGBTI activities. Um, I'll to the fact that Ghana uh, just only recently tabled a bill uh, uh, criminating the LGBTIQ activities. Ghana has been praised to be the godfather of uh, democracy and equality in the continent. But uh, these draconian laws seem to be taking effect uh, in even the most progressive uh, states. Uh, then again, I must say this, that um, the true Rwanda is a signatory to the UN joint statement that condemns violence against LGBTIQ persons. And um, same thing with the Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights of 1948. But um, these statements are just commitments by uh, by nations that uh, set standards towards human rights or the prevalence of human rights there's nothing that binds them towards it and um, this is reflective to the homophobic tendencies that um, are being seen um, on the ground because uh, as we speak there are so many cases of um, homophobia of violence uh, there's a lot of hate speech online um, there's uh, very many instances of discrimination, uh, both within the family setting and the society that uh, seems to target people of uh, sexual minorities, uh, people who, or, or even people who are of uh, varying uh, gender identities. And Louis, while we are on that thought of there has to be more that has to be done, could you reflect to us what do you think is the role of the churches and also what do you think is the role of proper quality education? What do the churches and what does proper quality education play as a role in this field? To begin with, uh, let's take a moment to reflect on what African culture is. And uh, as, as we've, we've um, come to realize that African culture is one that celebrates diversity and uniqueness. And this has been seen uh, through the various philosophical approaches that uh, that uh, our historical fathers uh, relied upon. I'll allude to Ubuntuism uh, in South Africa. We had humanism in Zambia. We had uh, the, the philosophy of Harambe in Kenya, also in the East African region at large, I must say. But with the onset of uh, colonialism and Christianity that came in the 18th and uh, 17th century, uh, heteronormativity and um, you know, um, same-sex relations were seen to be um, evil through the eyes of the Christian faith or, or, or such. So the role of the church should be one that uh, aims to preach uh, love, unity, hope, inclusion, and such. Um, yet to see a church that uh, relies itself on the doctrine of uh, hate and uh, negativity as is seen. Um, contrary to what is believed, it's a church that came with um, the, the, the notion of um, homophobia. Uh, these criminal stances that we see in today's legislation are, are a true reflection of what the Christian faith brought. And uh, this is something that uh, needs to change. Uh, in order for there to be um, positive attitude towards uh, the LGBTIQ community. 
the role of education is one that is quite broad. Um, uh, one one of the things that uh, uh, scholars that uh, pro LGBTIQ equality uh, profess is that um, uh, LGBTIQ persons or existence is the issue that is not repugnant to African norms. I'll uh, give the example of one famous scholar, Dr. Sil Sylvia Tamale, who has given an anthropological account of the existence of uh, LGBTIQ communities historically within the African continent. And uh, she alludes to various uh, factors like uh, the king of Buganda at the time was known to be um, gay. Uh, we had, uh, she alluded to the fact of uh, the Bushmen of Ruave in Zimbabwe, um, who also had uh, uh, members of um, different or varying sexual orientations or gender identities. And um, more to this is uh, how the societies adopted or inculcated them without any form of discrimination whatsoever. Um, this is something that uh, needs to be inculcated in today's education, where to be seen to be progressive. Um, for lawyers who study human rights like myself, the, the principle of universality um, as a countermeasure towards uh, cultural uh, relativism is something that can be included in the syllabus pro-LGBTIQ uh, rights, of course. Um, I think this is something that uh, needs to be inculcated as well. There, there are also other philosophers who come up with theories like intersectionality and identity politics um, that looks at um, how people with varying identities can actually forge that identity to uh, create equity for themselves. Uh, this is something that also can uh, be used to improve their curricula, so to speak. Certainly, the content that you've shared with us has been quite intriguing and engaging, but mostly very insightful. Um, and as we are nearing towards concluding our engagement, I do want to find out from you, only recently was the Persons with Disability Policy adopted in Rwanda. Could you please explain to us what does this entail? I must say that uh, the issue of persons with disability is something that uh, I'm quite sentimental about. And um, to also give a brief context on uh, disability rights in Rwanda, uh, we have the constitution that uh, lays down fundamental freedoms that uh, protect uh, persons with disability. We have Article 16, for example, that... Um, uh, prohibits any form of discrimination upon people with a physical or mental disability. Um, we have the law relating to persons with disability that was uh, enacted in 2007. And uh, we also have various institutional framework that also advocates for, for the rights of persons with disability. We have the National Council of Disability. This is a national body that advocates for rights of uh, people with disability across the board. Um, we also have a member of parliament who represents um, the legislative um, uh, formulation process, uh, pro-PWDs, uh, sitting member of parliament. But then again, uh, this framework, both institutional and legal, um, was seen to be acting um, within a vacuum, so to speak. 
Um, the most uh, recent census uh, placed uh, persons with disability uh, at about uh, 6% of the population. So um, about half a million of um, Rwandans are actually persons with disability. And uh, these laws did not address one thing, that um, disability is uh, the diverse concept. You'd have um, other forms of categories of uh, disabilities that were not well catered for within uh, these uh, particular laws or, or, or frameworks that uh, uh, were seen to be trying to create equality for persons with disability. And um, this is one of the things that this policy seeks to address. Um, I'll, I'll give the example of uh, uh, little people, for example. They were historically not uh, uh, considered to be persons with disability, and this is one of the things that this policy addresses. Um, people living with uh, albinism, people with autism, cerebral palsy, and uh, Down syndrome, all these um, are catered for well within the policy. And um, in all honesty, when uh, you look at the policy itself, it seems to uh, even uh, reflect more of the intention of the law than the law itself. And uh, it sets to operationalize um, some of these laws by triggering the non-discrimination clause fully. Um, it sets to also diversify the responsibilities uh, for uh, prevailing of um, PWD rights. Uh, uh, historically, traditionally, we'd have the Ministry of uh, Local Government, for example, that was in charge or had the docket of uh, uh, ensuring persons with disabilities' rights were, were ensured. But now this policy seems to diversify that. Uh, we have the Ministry of Finance that uh, is uh, given the onus of uh, budgeting, of having inclusive budgeting. We have uh, the Ministry of Sports and Culture, for example, as well, that uh, seems to have uh, the mandate of um, uh, promoting sports and culture that is inclusive. We now have the Paralympics that are um, set to begin, and uh, this is um, seen to be one of the avenues that the Ministry of Sport uh, can use this policy to encourage uh, persons with disability to participate in sports. All these are uh, brilliant uh, strategies that are presented in this policy. It's only right for us to uh, harness the, 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 the intention of this policy. I'll also allude to the fact that uh, um, the, the, the law did not also provide for other social amenities, for example, uh, health, uh, poverty reduction strategies, employment uh, for persons with disability. But um, this policy seems to provide, uh, for example, uh, uh, accessible forms of uh, education uh, as a right entitled for uh, students with uh, disability. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very sad fact that 68% uh, of uh, children with disability cannot access school much as they want to access school. And um, this uh, accessible means by the use of technology and assistive devices is something that is provided for by this policy. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing and it's um, being tried and tested. As I say, it's only a month into existence and uh, we hope to see that uh, equality and equity for persons with disability will, uh, will, will thrive moving forward. Thank you once again, Louis. And as we near the end of our engagement, 
I think let's end this one on a positive note and also uh, hear some of your personal aspirations. What is your dream or vision for human rights in Rwanda and perhaps even in Africa in general? Of course, human rights is something that is evolving. I I must say this, that uh, the African context is one that is blessed with uh, so much diversity, so much beauty, people from different cultures, walks of life, the social strata. And um, it's, it's, it's a sad thing to see that uh, the people who are mandated with uh, the, the, the responsibility of uh, making this world or this continent a better place are the ones who seem not to be respecting, you know, violating the rights of uh, the common being. Now, my dream, my ideal world is uh, to have responsible members of the community taking up these leadership positions and um, fulfilling the mandates as required by law, not even by law, by the human nature, you know, promoting the dignity of, uh, of the human person. You know, it's, it's, it's a concept that is not Western. This is a concept that is not also not just African. It's a human concept, the dignity of, uh, of the human person through equality, through non-discrimination, through the respect of uh, the rule of law. These are things that um, I would ideally want to see. Those people in power should um, look towards themselves as human beings and try as much as possible to create a dignified society amongst African citizens. And I'm confident, Louis, you will definitely be amongst those that are at the forefront of continuing to defend and protect human rights, not only in your own country, Rwanda, but in Africa in general. Thank you very much for sharing interesting and also educational insights with us and our listeners. We really do appreciate all the knowledge that you've shared with us. Thank you, Louis. I really enjoyed that conversation with Louis and it was interesting to hear how Rwanda has been evolving since 1994. Some things that really stood out for me in our conversations were the government's policy on promotion of women in decision-making roles and the fact that 62% of National Assembly representatives are women. It is interesting to hear how this has had a trickle-down effect in other sectors of society, including business. Women are in leadership roles where they are able to effect real change. I was also touched to hear Louis's personal account of how he ended up being a human rights lawyer and how his early life and being born a refugee impacted his decision to devote his life to fighting for human rights. Now, although Rwanda has its human rights issues, from Louis's reflections, it seems that there has been progress in the area of transformation in Rwanda. This was our Rwanda episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. If you enjoyed the podcast, join us for our next episode. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Sahara Africa is an independent German organization that is committed to promote liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, 
cultural happenings and training courses. The foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, as well as LGBTQI plus rights, and engages against violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply search for Freedom Foundation Africa.